Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to Scott's Hill. Those of you who are live in here, those of you who are in the Cross Point Center joining us week after week, and those of you who are inviting us into your homes, we're grateful to be a part of your lives. And I just want to let you all know in this room, we're constantly having difficulty with space. We squeeze people in. We got a few seats open here. Um, but we also have a service going on right now in the Cross Point Center that has some space. So if you ever find yourself maybe a little crowded in here, I want to encourage you to consider the Cross Point Center. We have refreshments there. You actually get to eat and drink in that building. And uh, so I want to give you an opportunity, if you'd like to join in that, to give us some more opportunities to make room here. We'd love for you to join us in that. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here, and we are happy to have you here. And of course, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Um, Some of you are pulling for um, a team tonight. How many of you are pulling for the Kansas City Swift Um, Yeah, okay, yeah, some of you are doing that, yeah. How many of you are pulling for the 49ers? Yeah. How many of you are grieving because you're a Detroit Lions fan and you didn't make it, or a Dallas Cowboys fan, or a New Orleans Saints fan like myself? I don't have a dog in a fight, but I will watch the game, and personally, I'd love to see the 49ers pull out this win. So um, those of you who are 49er fans, if we win, just send me a gift certificate to Ruth's Chris. Um, I'll be praying for them on your behalf. Well, um, on October 7th of 2023, a horrendous act took place in Israel. A group of Islamic terrorists crossed the Gaza Strip went into Israel and slaughtered over 1,500 Jewish people. And it was so barbaric, it was so brutal, that it was even hard for people to contain the kind of violence that was perpetrated on the people of Israel. And since that time, many people had a number of questions about Israel. And people have been asking the question, like, is is God done with Israel? Is God's judgment on Israel because of this? And there have been pockets of people in churches that have been debating the question about what is Israel's role now in the world? And we even had discussions among our own pastors. And as we began to talk about these things, you're wondering, how does God allow something like that to happen to people that are claimed to be his people Is God done with Israel? That's not a new question. That's a question that's been around for a long time. In fact, as we are studying the book of Romans, we come to chapter 11 in that incredible book where the apostle Paul is asking the same questions. And he's asking the questions because he has an imaginary inquisitor who's raising the question about Israel. Now, we have been going through the book of Romans since last September, 
And we made it to chapter eight and it was a great time of celebration because there's no condemnation and there's no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we come to chapters nine, 10, and 11 and we put on the brakes and we wonder how in the world do these chapters fit together with everything else that Paul has been teaching us in Romans. And, and, I, and if you remember, I told you we need to read chapters nine, 10, and 11 as a unit because Paul all of a sudden starts speaking about Israel's past, Israel's present, and in chapter 11, Israel's future. And we said in each of those chapters, Paul focuses in on a particular area. In chapter 9, he focuses on God's sovereignty in history and in salvation. That God is sovereign, he is free in his own sovereignty, either to exercise justice on the wicked or he is free in his own sovereignty to exercise grace and mercy on sinners. And whether God exercises judgment or he exercises mercy, that is his sovereign prerogative, and either way, he can never be considered unjust in any of those. So we focused on God's sovereignty in history of Israel and in salvation. And then last week, Jeff taught us about man's responsibility in salvation. That while God is sovereign and he chooses from the foundation of the earth, man also has a responsibility to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so there's this tension between sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And here's what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't try to reconcile the two. He rec recognizes that each is true, chosen from the foundation of the earth, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And when he comes to chapter 11, he combines those together. Because what we see in chapter 11 is his sovereign act in humanity and in the nation of Israel, and we see the responsibility of people to surrender, and by faith receive Christ as Lord. But in chapter 11, he specifically is going to deal with two difficult questions with respect to Israel. Now, chapter 11 is the hardest to interpret. It's the most difficult to deal with because you're dealing with some end time events. You're dealing with a number of different positions of what people have when they come to think about Israel. But the Apostle Paul just asks a couple of questions and he gives us the answers, is God done with Israel? So here's how the Apostle Paul focuses. The entire chapter has one theme, that God will accomplish his sovereign plan for redemption. No matter what happens, God will accomplish his sovereign plan for redemption. He will use people, he will use nations, and he will use his grace and his mercy to change the hearts of men and women. So he asked two questions, and here's the first question that Paul asked. Has God rejected his people Israel? Is he done with them? Has he rejected them? Now, he writes this because the, Jew, the Jewish people have rejected Christ as Messiah. The Gentiles are watching all of this. They're seeing that all of these Jews who were looking for the Messiah ended up crucifying the Messiah when he came. And surely God must have rejected them. Paul's answer to that is by no means. 
God forbid, he has not rejected his people Israel. And the Apostle Paul gives four reasons why God has not rejected the people of Israel. And he lays these out in verses one through five. Here's what he says. Number one, he gives a personal argument. He says, I'm gonna give you a personal argument that God hasn't rejected the people of Israel. Here's what he says. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying this, listen, I am exhibit A that God hasn't rejected the people of Israel. I come from the most elite tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. When it comes to the law, I was zealous. And in the midst of my zealousness of persecuting the church and putting Christians to death, Jesus sovereignly appeared to me and he gave me grace and faith and he saved my soul. And now I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My personal testimony is that Jesus radically changed this Jew. And therefore, God is not done with the Jewish people. I want you to know something. We should never underestimate our testimony. You see, people may not believe your presentation of the gospel, but let me tell you what they won't deny. They won't deny that your life is different. They won't deny that you have been changed. They won't deny the fact that you're a different person. I share the gospel with people all the time. And one of the things I always include in my gospel presentation is my personal testimony. And every single believer should be able to form his or her testimony in three minutes. One minute of who you were without Christ, one minute of how you came to know Christ, and one minute of how your life has been different since Jesus Christ. And every time I have the opportunity to share the gospel, I do that. I was sharing with a little lady one day who is Jewish. And she told me, I do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I said, why don't you believe that? She said, because my mom and dad told me he wasn't. I said, oh, did they study and the facts and they came to the conclusion? No, no, no. I said, how did they come to that? Her mom and dad told them. I said, oh, they studied the facts and the conclusions and came to the place that Jesus can. No, 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 no. Their mom and dad told them. I said, so you're basing it all on the fact of what somebody told you is you've never experienced it for yourself. I took it through the pages of scripture and she was not moved at all by that. But when I told her my testimony of what God radically did in my life, she said, I like you. <laughs> she said, you're not shoving this down my face. Besides, you look like Tom Cruise. And <laughs> she needed glasses, obviously. But your testimony, don't ever underestimate how God has changed your life and how God can use that as an impact in the lives of people that they cannot deny. So Paul says, first of all, no, no, he's not done with the people because here's my personal argument. Look what he's done for me. Secondly, Paul gives a theological argument. Here's the theological argument. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We looked in Romans chapter eight, verse 29. You remember what Paul says is called a golden chain of salvation that he foreknew us and then he predestined us. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. 
And foreknew means this, to set your love on someone beforehand. And what Paul is saying is this, that from eternity past, God set his love on the people of Israel. And because he set his love on the people of Israel, he will never deny them. Because he has loved them from eternity past. He has predestined them to be his people from eternity past. He has called them. He has justified those who have trusted him and he will glorify them. And here's the point. God will never disown people that he set his love on. And listen to me, believer, if you're a child of God and you have trusted Christ as your savior, there's never been a time God has not loved you. There's never been a time where God has not known you. He has called you from eternity past. He is the one who has set his love on you. Jesus died for you by his precious blood and you may have failures in your life. You may stumble in your life, but your heavenly father will never disown you because you are his for all of eternity. And the people of Israel whom he has foreknown, he is not going to cast away. So there's a personal argument, then he gives this theological argument, but thirdly, he gives a scriptural argument. He takes us to the pages of scripture and he reminds us of what happened in the life of the great prophet Elijah. Now you may remember Elijah was battling Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jezebel was a wicked woman, and they raised up the worship of Baal among the country. And Elijah confronted 800 priests of Baal and he defeated them. And then he got on the run because Jezebel says, I'm going to find you. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And he's hiding out. And here's how Paul says it. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He was having a great pity party. God, I'm the only one who's serving you. I'm the only one that's left. And God responds to him and says, Elijah, you got your mathematics all wrong. God says, but... <clears throat> God's reply is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 others. So there's 7,001 people who refuse to worship the false god Baal, and God has a remnant. And he's a group of people that he is going to hold on. You are not alone. Now, 7,000 people in a whole nation of Israel doesn't sound like much, does it? But remember this. God doesn't need a massive army to accomplish his sovereign purposes. Remember Gideon? God used 300 people to destroy 180,000 enemies. God doesn't need numbers and sometimes we think we're all alone, don't we? Well, I'm the only one in my class who loves Jesus. I'm the only one on the job who loves Jesus. I'm the only one in my family who has a relationship with Christ. I'm the only one in my neighborhood. Chances are you're not. But even if you are, I love what John Knox said one time. He was speaking to Mary, Queen of Scots. She said, I fear no man except for the prayers of John Knox. And one day John Knox reminded her, he says, a man with God is always in the majority. 
And if you're the only one on the job, if you're the only one on the family, if you're the only one in your classroom, you are enough because God is with you. God doesn't need numbers. He doesn't need any of us. But it is his pleasure to use us. And he's reminding the people of Israel that that doesn't have to be a whole nation. 7,000 will accomplish his purposes. Then he gives the last argument. It's a contemporary argument. He says this. So too, at the present time, as he's writing to the Romans, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on a basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He said there is a remnant. And this remnant has been chosen by God, by his sovereign love he's put upon them, and by his mercy and his grace, he's called them to himself, and they are enough. And during this time, there were thousands upon thousands of Jews who were coming to faith in Christ. In Jerusalem alone, after the resurrection of Jesus, after the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, there were 5,000 that were added to the church, then 3,000. And then you keep looking at the multiplication in Acts, and it says that many of the priests have come to faith in Christ. And what we see is that God is constantly doing a work among his people. In fact, there are Jewish people in this church who have surrendered their life to faith in Christ. And they have come to know the Messiah. And they're what we would call completed Jews, Messianic Jews, because they've trusted Christ and is the sign that God is not done with Israel. He's still bringing Jewish people to faith in Christ. Why? Because God is going to accomplish his sovereign plan through redemptive history. And then verses 7 through 10, Paul kind of recaps. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what was it seeking. What was it seeking? Self-righteousness. And because they were going after their own righteousness, they failed to receive what God had. The elect obtained it. Those who were chosen by God, those who had yielded their lives by faith to God, received what God had. But the others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, which means this, that they were completely insensitive to spiritual things. They couldn't see it. And they hardened their hearts and God allowed them to go that way and run after their own self-righteousness because their eyes would not see and their ears would not hear down to this very day. We see the same thing today. I can't tell you the number of Jewish people I have talked with over the years, and so few of them have been able to see the truth of the Messiah. So few, because their eyes have been blinded by the religiosity of their day. Then David, then, then, then Paul quotes David. And he says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Here's what he's saying. This is a little bit obtuse. It's hard to understand. But he's saying this, that the Jewish people are so steeped in their own religious laws that they can't even keep them. And the law that they're trying to follow doesn't make them perfect. It shows their imperfection. 
And as they continue in their own self-righteousness and continue by their works and by their good deeds, they are so weighed down that their back is bent over by the heaviness of something that can never bring salvation. Here's a warning to us in the church. Sometimes we as people that are actively involved in the church can think that if I do the right things, then maybe I can be accepted by God. Maybe if I carry the right things, maybe if I serve in this area or serve in this area or go on this mission trip or do this and do this, if I memorize this or I can accomplish this and what happens, your backs ended up being so weighed down by the weight of something that can never change you. And what Jesus is saying is release that weight because the weight I bore on the cross, I bore for you to be free. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. And some of you are carrying such heavy weight that will keep you from eternity with Christ. And he's saying to you today, let it go. Trust me. It's not based upon your performance. It's based upon what I did for you on the cross to set you free today. So he comes to this conclusion that God is not done with them. And he paints the picture of where they are now. But then he asks a second question. And the second question goes a little deeper. The first one was, has God rejected Israel? And his response is, no, by no means has he rejected them. The second question is, has Israel stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery? When Israel has rejected the Messiah, is there any hope for her? Is she stumbled so far that God has just written her off and he's not going to do anything with her? Here's what Paul says, by no means. A person can stumble and fall and have irreparable damage because of the fall. But a person can stumble lose his balance, but catch himself and end up having a recovery. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. And what he's saying here is that when they rejected Christ, all of a sudden there is what John Stott calls a chain of blessing. And this chain of blessing flows because of their rejecting Christ. And in God's sovereign plan, he allowed Israel to reject Christ so that God can complete and fulfill his desire for redemption in the world. Let me give you the plan. It's just simply this, salvation for the Gentiles. He puts it this way, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because of Israel's rejection of Christ, salvation went to the Gentiles. When you read in a book of Acts, you will find no less than four times on four missionary journeys, the apostle Paul going to a place, preaching to the Jews, they reject it, and then the Gentiles embrace it, and then there's a mass revival that takes place. When Paul goes to Antioch, the Jews reject him, and what does he do? He turns to the Gentiles, and hundreds of thousands of Gentiles come to faith in Christ. When Paul and Barnabas go on the second and the third missionary journey to Corinth and Ephesus, the Jews run them out of town, but they share the gospel in some secular building and thousands of Gentiles come to faith in Christ. 
On the fourth missionary journey, he's in Rome. And you know how many people were a part of the church in Rome? It is estimated 25,000 members were in the church of Rome, and almost all of them were Gentiles. And what happens is because of their rejection, you and I get to hear the message of the gospel and we get to have the opportunity to have our hearts transformed by the grace of God. That's one. But here's the second thing that happens. There's envy for the Jews. Paul continues. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. This is not a negative kind of jealousy. This is a positive kind of jealousy. Here's what happens, that all these Gentiles start coming to faith in Christ. They surrender their lives to Jesus. They are radically changed. I mean, these were pagans. They worshiped false gods, and now all of a sudden, they leave all their paganism. They leave their sinful lives, and then they give their lives to Christ. Jesus changes them from the inside out. They have this love, this devotion for Jesus. They're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are producing the fruit of the Spirit, and the Jews are watching him thinking, man, what's happening? And it's the kind of, I don't know what happened to them, but I want some of that kind of mentality. And the Jews are jealous with envy because they're watching the Gentiles grow and flourish in a relationship with God that they had never known. And here's the third thing that happens as a result of it. They're blessings to the world. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Basically saying this, that the gospel never stayed in Jerusalem. It went all the way across the world. And as a result of the Jews rejecting Christ, the message of the gospel has gone to the far reaches of the world. And God in his sovereignty had already set it all up. And how did he do it? With Alexander the Great using him to accomplish one language, Greek language, among all the people. And he used the Roman Empire. How did he use him? With the Pax Romana. And he developed road systems and peace was all throughout the land. And for the first time, people could travel from country to country without any dangerous robbers or bands of people trying to kill them because they were protected. And there was one language and the New Testament was written in Greek and it spread across the whole world. And what we see is God using all of these things. And then he says this, and if the Jews would come back, if they would receive Christ, Can you even imagine the mega blessings that the world would receive? So he said, God's not done with them. He's used them in these ways. And then he gives a a personal illustration in verses 13 through 15. He says, now I'm speaking to your Gentiles. He's writing to the Romans. They're predominantly Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Here's a picture he's saying. Paul is living his life in such a way that he wants the Jewish people to desire what he has. I want to live in such a way that I become an influence to people that when they look at my life, they're going to say, man, I want some of that. 
What an incredible reminder to you and me. You know, as a child of God, you are a walking, living, breathing testimony of Jesus Christ. And as a child of God, you are constantly leaving an influence, whether it's positive or negative. And the thing that we're called to do as children of God is to live our lives in such a way that when the world looks at us, they say, I want that kind of peace. And the world looks at us, they say, I want that kind of love. I want that kind of compassion. I, I, I want that kind of integrity. I want that kind of sacrifice. I want that kind of devotion. And when we live according to the teachings of, of Christ, and we model those in our lives, we should be, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says that we are to be the aroma of Jesus to a lost world. Let me ask you a question. Are you living your life in such a way that people are watching you and saying, I want some of that? Are you living your life in such a way that your children are watching you and say, I want to be like mommy. I want to be like daddy. Are your coworkers watching your life and say, wow, that is what a real Christian looks like? Or do we find ourselves with people looking at us and saying, if that's what a Christian is, count me out. You see, the, every one of us with our testimony, every one of us with our faith in Christ, every one of us, God sovereignly wants to use to impact a world as we reflect the heart of Jesus. Why? Because God will accomplish his sovereign plan for redemption. Now, it gets really hard at this point because in verses 16 and following, the apostle Paul tries to make this connection between unity and humility between Gentiles and Jews. Because in Rome, Jews were not thought very highly of. They were spoken down to, they were mistreated, and these Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And then all of a sudden, they're receiving the Messiah. They're looking at the Jews, and they're looking down on the Jews. They're saying, you rejected the Messiah. And then they began to treat the Jews with disdain and disrespect. And the apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. As a convert, as a person in Christ, there is to be unity and humility as Jews and Gentiles live together. And this is how he puts it. He talks about a picture of unity and humility. And verse 16, he uses this verse as a transition. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, if a little bit of the dough is holy, the whole part is holy. If the roots of a tree are holy, then the whole tree is holy. Then he begins to use an illustration of an olive tree. And in Israel, there were two kinds of olive trees that grow. I'm going to go really fast through this, okay? There was one olive tree, which is the cultivated tree. This was the tree that people raised in their gardens, and they cultivated it. They watered it. They fertilized it. It was a domesticated olive tree. And then there was the wild olive tree. And the wild olive tree was one that just grew out in the wild. Not many people paid attention to that. You didn't cultivate it. You just let it grow. 
But when an olive tree is beginning to lose its production of fruit, what they discovered is if you take a wild olive branch, cut off the dead branches of the cultivated tree, graft in the wild olive tree branches, it invigorates the whole tree and it begins producing new fruit in an abundance. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There were some scholars that say, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. You can't do that until 1905 when Sir William Ramsey, who was a great um, archaeologist, discovered that the practice of reinvigorating dying trees is to take a wild branch and graft it in. And Paul uses that of what happens to Gentiles. When we come to faith in Christ, we are grafted into the promises and the covenants of God. Here's how he puts it. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not become arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, he's speaking to the Gentiles. Listen, you have been grafted in. You are receiving the covenants and the promises of God. And now you're protected by him. But don't get so arrogant to put down the Jewish people. Don't get so arrogant to demean them and treat them with disdain. Don't be anti-Semitic because they have rejected Christ. You are grafted in and you are being supported by the roots. In other words, you are standing on the prophets and the promises and the covenants of God, and you do not look down on the people of God. I'm gonna tell you, there's a lot of looking down on the people of Israel today, isn't there? We see it all across America. We see it in churches, but we're not to do that. We're not to have an anti-Semitic view. Why? Because we are standing on the shoulders of prophets and great men and women of God of the Old Testament. And we ought not ever do what Andy Stanley suggests that we should do. And that is to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament completely. Because the Old Testament tells us of the promises and the Messiah. And what do we do? We stand on the word of God that is eternal. Then he goes on. He says, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. And then he gives this warning. For if God did not spare the natural branches or the unbelieving Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The warning is this. Listen, you might say that you're grafted in, but just remember this. If you're not living a life of pursuing Christ and your life is not one of transformation, you're no different than the Jews who are trying to keep the law and were cut off, and you too might be cut off. The point is this. He's not saying you'll lose your salvation. What he's saying is this. Those people who are truly saved will never walk away from Jesus. We hear a lot of people today and artists and, and a lot of Christians in a lot of churches saying that they, they denounce their faith. They walk away from Jesus. They no longer believe him. And people say they lost their salvation. No, I declare that they never had it because they're walking away with an unbelieving heart, which symbolizes 
that they were never really of Christ. He goes on. I got to go fast. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. He's talking about the people of Israel. They, God has a, an affection for them. He has the ability. He can bring them back into the tree. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, they're the original people of Israel. They may have been cut off temporarily, but I can graft them back in. And then what does he do? He gives us the picture now of the future of Israel. He's laid all this out. And in his sovereign plan, he's allowed Israel to reject him for the benefit of the world. And now when he comes to chapter 11, verse 25 and following, he gives us a picture of something that's a mystery that we can't understand. He says this, least you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. What is the mystery? Brothers, there is a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Right now, there is a partial hardening of their hearts until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What does that mean? That means until the fullness, until God is done saving the Gentiles of the world, then God will do something that is miraculous in the hearts of his people. And it says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. I don't know when that happens. Paul doesn't tell us. It's somewhere before the second coming of Christ, some miraculous um, revival is going to take place and Israel will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We don't know. Now, some people take the word Israel here and they say it's spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel represents the church. And God is no longer talking about Israel as an ethnic and a nation. He's talking about the church that replaces Israel. That's called replacement theology. And that's in error. Why? Because Paul is talking about Israel as a nation and as an ethnic group of people. And all through chapter 11, every time he says Israel, he's talking about an ethnicity and he's talking about a nation. And he's saying that there will be a literal movement of God among the people of Israel and they will be saved. Now he says they'll be all saved. Does that mean every single Jew in the world will come to faith in Christ? Not at all. It just simply means that the masses of Israel will come into a relationship with Christ and Israel as a whole will come to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, there's some people who hold to dual covenant theology. And dual covenant theology simply means this, that there's a way for Gentiles to get saved and that's through Christ. But the way of Jews to get saved is just through their heritage and they don't need Christ. That is a lie from the enemy. And I will tell you that many, many Jews today believe that. Many Jews believe that Abraham is sitting at the gates of hell. And anytime a Jewish person starts making his way towards the gates of hell, Abraham stops them, turns them around and says, you're a child of God, go to heaven. They believe that is happening. But there's only one way for both Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, and that's Jesus Christ. 
And somewhere in the future, there is going to be an opportunity. Why? Because God will accomplish his sovereign plan for all of redemption. And then he quotes from Isaiah. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. And then he continues. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies now. Speaking of Jews, right now they're enemies. They want to persecute you. They want to put you to death. They're enemies for your sake. But as a regard to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the callings are irrevocable. Then he continues, verses 30 through 32. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. The all there, he's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews who are gonna come to faith in Christ. And then what does he do? He closes After talking about theology, he goes into this great doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And when we look at this, from him, he is the source of all blessings. Through him, he is the agency of all blessings. And to him, he is the end for all blessings. It's him. And God will accomplish his sovereign plan for redemption. That is the picture that Paul is painting of Israel. So what does that mean for us? What does, that, what does that mean? I, I really struggled on how to present this sermon because there weren't many points to it. He's just giving us all this information. So, so how do we take chapters 9, 10, and 11 and make it applicable for us in 2024? Let me give you four things in closing. Number one, worship him for his amazing grace. If you're a child of God, you are his child only by his grace. By grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is because of what he has done in you that you have a relationship with him. So worship him. Secondly, pray for the lost, Gentiles and Jews. I mean, really, when's the last time you specifically prayed for the Jewish people? I know that I don't think about that. I think in terms of Gentiles. But this has caused me to stir my heart to pray for the Jewish people, that they would come to know the Messiah. Here's the third thing. Speak to the lost about Jesus. Tell people around you who changed your life and how you are different and how can they come to know God through Jesus Christ the Son. Tell people about Jesus. Many people are going to talk about the Super Bowl tomorrow. But you know what? A year from now, people will forget about it. Why? Because there is no eternal significance to a football game. But there is to telling people about how they can come into a relationship with God 
and be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life with him. And lastly, look with anticipation for the return of Jesus. Oh, look for it. And you never know when the last Gentile may bring into the fulfillment of God ushering in his kingdom. It might be through your words to someone or to a neighbor. So as we take these things and we look at 9, 10, and 11, dealing and struggling with this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and how God is going to work all things out for his glory in the end. And he wants to use you to accomplish it. Seek him. Worship him. Tell others and look for the return of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This has been a difficult passage. But Father, I know that there's so many different interpretations that people have. I pray, Father, that you would enable us to just to understand the simple truth that you will accomplish your sovereign plan for redemption. And I ask, Father, that you would stir our hearts in such a way that we just lean into you We worship you. We share Christ with others. And we look forward to the return of Christ that we might be with him forever. Father, I pray for the believers in this room that you would cause a boldness to be able to be stirred in our hearts from this. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would with clarity by the power of your spirit, speak to their hearts and their minds. And Father, they would come to surrender themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.